Welcome, everyone. This is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And today I'm going to talk about a subject that a number of listeners have asked about and suggested. And it's something that I certainly touched on in the contemporary setting, at least, in my discussion about the so-called squared uh, hoax from a few weeks ago. So it's been a while since I've put up a new podcast for the public, uh, and today I'm going to talk about the history of universities. So this is something that I ought to already know a little bit about. I've worked for universities. I've had too many years (laughs) of education in the university system, and it's something that I've picked up some knowledge and background about here and there, but I had to do some more research on in order to fill in the whole picture. So universities are one of the fundamental defining features of what we call Western civilization, if we're going to group together Europe and its colonies as a kind of coherent form of life and society, which a lot of scholars do. In fact, some really have argued that the university is the fundamental defining institution of the West. Universities have taken on this special defining role that you sort of know that you have a modern society in the Western sense and that you know that you have something like a modern leadership class and a governing class if you have a university that can produce university graduates. So one of the things that's really remarkable about universities as an institution is that they're very much rooted in the high Middle Ages, and their origins and their shape really make sense when you see them in the medieval context, and yet they're really, in a a sense, the only distinctive medieval institution that has survived and that has continued to grow and thrive and extend its power all through the modern age, and beyond Europe. There's really no other institution that's made the leap like the university has. So I'm going to talk about the origins of universities, okay, of the particular first universities that blazed the trail, and then I'll talk about how universities have had to adjust over and over again through a series of crises when their authority, their ability to teach have been challenged and undermined from the outside over and over again, and universities have had to adjust and adapt. And I'm going to emphasize that particularly because, in my view, the university system is in another such crisis today where its prestige, its authority, its usefulness to society is radically in question. And some sort of paradigm shift is going to have to happen. Maybe has already started, but will have to happen if the university as an institution is going to persist into whatever sort of new civilization is coming next. Okay, so let's start out with where universities came from. Well, for thousands of years, there have been 
organized schools of one sort or another, right? Where pupils have gathered together in order to study and learn from a wise person, a teacher, a master, right? So you can think of Plato's Academy that he assembled on a hill in Athens, right? And that lasted for hundreds of years through all the way through late antiquity. In other ways, there were Islamic institutions, particularly the House of Wisdom at Baghdad, that we can see as kind of precursors of universities with large gatherings of teachers instructing students in a variety of disciplines and fields of knowledge. But it doesn't seem that there's any continuous connection, any thread of connection, either from those ancient schools of the Greek and Roman world or from the Islamic houses of learning to modern universities. You know, any influence is very indirect and diffuse. It was really a new distinctive sort of institution that arose in the Middle Ages. And it grew gradually out of various small schools, uh, you know, more or less similar to classical antiquity with, with students traveling to particular towns and cities in order to study with learned masters. And also from cathedral schools where young men, particularly young clerics, would gather at the priories of great cathedrals like Notre Dame in Paris in order to study with the monks and canons attached to the cathedral. But the university was something new, uh, something extraordinary, really, in the strict sense of the word, and something that was remarkably adapted to persist and grow and thrive through the ages. So what are the distinctive features that we take to define a university as we use the word? Well, it's a unified, incorporated body that uh, of, of people, right? Originally men, but it didn't remain that way. Uh, but in, an incorporated body of people who adopt some sort of shared mission, of teaching and learning, and that can act as a body, own property, make its own rules, dispense its own discipline, and so on. That has a faculty able to teach a wide variety of disciplines, and hence to give a comprehensive education, right? To pass on some sort of complete education in a core accepted body of knowledge, such that a person can leave the institution and be recognized as uh, an educated uh, an educated person, right? And we traditionally call that liberal education, right? The, the education in all the fields and disciplines that are proper to a free person. And this recognition of a complete liberal education is, of course, formalized in the granting of degrees. So that's another crucial feature of a university, the ability to confer degrees attesting that someone uh, has completed a course of education and that they can then take to other places all around Europe or all around Western society, and that will be recognized as valid. And finally, and this arguably is the most crucial uh, sort of watershed of the creation of a university, it has independence 
over and control over its own affairs, right? We today we call this uh, academic freedom, right? The right for scholars to teach as they choose. But originally, at root, it was simply the ability to um, to teach, to learn, and to operate without being harassed or expelled or shut down by local authorities. This attainment of the independence of the university was crucial to its survival and its kind of special privileged place in the medieval world and then on through the modern world. So a university can be said to have a basic broad purpose, the creation of an informed, qualified, capable leadership class ready to take up important positions of power in society. And in this way, the university can be said to serve a social purpose, right? It is not there simply for its own benefit or simply for profit, like uh, like a business incorporation. Rather, like most incorporated bodies in the medieval world, it was understood that it should play some sort of role and serve some sort of purpose for society as a whole. It should further a common good, right? So universities in this way, they, they are marked from their beginning with this kind of medieval belief in an organic society with common goods. But it's unique as a holdover. Okay, and this is particularly obvious when we look at the root of the word, right? So our English word university comes from the Latin universitas. And in the Middle Ages, in the 12th and 13th centuries, when the first universities formed, that word universitas was used for all kinds of bodies and groups, you know, maybe a professional, occupational group, maybe a religious brotherhood, uh, all sorts of things. And so when groups of scholars joined together in certain cities, they sometimes used the phrase universitas scholarium or an universitas of scholars, right? They had to describe more specifically what kind of universitas they were, right? Or you could say what kind of university. They were a scholarly teaching university, right? Whereas later in the modern era, we've dropped the rest of the phrase and now the meaning of the word university has been narrowed down to basically just mean an, an academic, an incorporated academic school. And this, I think, illustrates how the university has moved out of its older medieval context and in a way it's, it's the one survivor of that sort of medieval world. Right? from a, a world that was highly, highly organized, highly ritualized, in which people constantly were joining together, creating uh, groups and institutions with their own beliefs, their own symbols, their own elaborate uh, rituals and traditions. Right? So when we today, especially in the modern United States, look at a university, we often marvel at the weird processions and the, you know, recitations of Latin and these things that are, you know, even more sort of strangely archaic in our modern eyes because they, they really have no other parallel remaining, right? They're kind of this one remaining vestige of medieval social pageantry. 
So how did universities come about? Well, it was a very gradual and haphazard process. Okay, they grew and formed gradually, step by step, people joining together, forming a set of rules, seeking a charter, trying to incorporate. It was usually a multi-step process, and it's impossible, especially with the earliest universities, it's impossible to pick out one singular date of origin, right? If someone tells you, oh, well, such and such university was created in 1088, that's usually not true. It was made up at some other time, right? Because how do you decide, okay, when did this university come into being? Was it when the first meeting was held? Was it when bylaws were drawn up? Was it when they got a city charter or a papal charter or whatever? It was something that took various steps. And as each group formed an universitas scolarium or, uh, or a studium generale, a general school, they would set a certain set of precedents that then other groups in other towns could imitate, right? So it was, it was a step-by-step -step organic process. And it mainly came about because of the special needs of students, particularly their needs for safety and independence. Okay, so if we look at Europe in the, say, early 1100s, there were many small schools and kind of informal academies forming with young men gathering to study and, and sometimes young women as well in places like Paris and Bologna and, uh, and London. And there was a problem where a lot of these young students were from far away. They were foreigners. And they were not citizens or burghers of the towns where they were studying. They were outsiders. And that was very significant in the Middle Ages. It meant that you didn't have many rights, right? You, you, you shouldn't be murdered, right? You shouldn't be arbitrarily imprisoned. But you still were quite vulnerable. You could be arrested for little or no reason. You could be expelled just because the town didn't really want you to be there anymore. And particularly, you could be hit with all kinds of taxes and fees because the town you were in saw you as a potential source of money, right? So your property, your resources were really not safe. So in response to this dilemma, a lot of these students naturally banded together. They formed associations of mutual support they tried to advocate for and protect one another and particularly a lot of them started to form you might say sort of guilds or fraternities of men from the same nation okay and I'm I'm doing scare quotes with my fingers when I say nation this was a very broad loose term that people started to use in the 1100s or so to mean kind of, you know, a set of people in a particular place who had come from somewhere else and who maybe spoke the same language or almost the same language, who shared certain customs and who tended to socialize together, right? So in some of these towns with large concentrations of scholars, the students formed formalized nation groups, right? So maybe in Paris, the German students formed a German nation. Okay, or maybe in Naples, the French students formed a French nation, this kind of thing.
And eventually these nations started to also cooperate, to band together and to try to form a larger umbrella group that would protect all of them and obtain for them certain rights, protections, immunities in the town where they were located. And the first two places where this happened were Bologna in Italy and Paris. Okay, and the first was Bologna, and it seems that this process of students joining together, first into nations and then into a larger universitas, was the beginning of the first university, as we understand the word. Okay, so Bologna comes first. You might sometimes see people say, oh, Bologna was founded in 1088. There's no contemporary or even early evidence for that, and it almost surely wasn't then. It was in the 1100s. Okay, what was going on in the 1100s? Why Bologna? Well, in this time, the Holy Roman Empire, which controlled, at least formally, controlled most of Central Europe, right? Germany, Low Countries, Switzerland, Northern Italy. The Holy Roman Empire was engaged in a fierce political struggle with the Pope over political authority and power. Okay, powers over property and real estate, power to appoint church officials in the empire. And so the imperial government and the imperial court had tremendous demand for officials like diplomats and magistrates who were trained in law, especially in Roman law, and who could use knowledge of Roman law in order to make persuasive arguments in favor of the empire against the pope. Now, Bologna is in sort of north-central Italy, and it was on the edge, close to the frontier of the land claimed by the Holy Roman Empire, and it was on important trade and pilgrimage routes running between central Europe down to Rome. Okay, so there were many uh, pilgrims, merchants, diplomats traveling back and forth in and out of Rome and up into Germany, Switzerland, that whole area, going through Bologna. Okay, so this was a natural place for teachers learned in Roman law to set up shop and offer their services to teach law to students in return for money. So a lot of these uh, masters and students started to cluster together in Bologna. But as I said, they were very vulnerable. They were often harassed, fined, uh, expelled from the city unexpectedly. And so they gathered together first into four nations, okay, two so-called cismontane nations of Italians and two transmontane nations of Central Europeans. So they gathered together on the basis of shared everyday language and origins, right? So schooling was conducted in Latin, but if you weren't a native Latin speaker, as nobody really was by this time, then it was awfully tiring to have to conduct yourself in Latin all the time. So people gathered together by language and they formed these four nations and these four nations gathered together to form a so-called University of Students around 1180. 
we the records don't survive so we can't say we can't pinpoint exactly but it was probably about 1180 so this was the beginning of the first university and this was an entirely student run university right it was created by and for students the students set the curriculum they hired the teachers usually on annual contracts okay and set requirements for promptness and uh, efficiency and effectiveness in teaching and they elected uh, leaders to manage the university and to represent them to the local authorities such as the rectors so bologna maybe sent a signal out to other students in other towns of how they could manage their affairs and protect their interests. So the second town where a university formed, not surprisingly, was Paris. Now in Paris there was already a cathedral school where many students were going to learn philosophy, classics, and especially theology. Right. So whereas Bologna was focused most heavily on law, in Paris the interest was more in religion and theology. So here, too, shortly after Bologna, students organized themselves into nations. And also, the masters or teachers formed a group, a sort of guild of masters. And the students and masters joined together to form a university around 1190, so not long after Bologna. So this was a different kind of university. It was one where the students and teachers had to share power and there was a whole complicated layering of you know rectors and provosts and deans that were chosen by different bodies of students and teachers right and it was the faculties okay the sort of committees of of teachers who made decisions like setting the curriculum administering examinations conferring degrees and so on right so this was uh so Sometimes people make a distinction and say uh, Bologna was a student's university and Paris was a master's university. Uh, but, you know, really, Paris was a hybrid student and master's university. So after about 1200, there was a continuing proliferation, a sort of rapid pro proliferation of new schools and universities all over Europe. And... Early on in these early years, the students who formed universities usually turned to the Pope and obtained papal letters of support and protection for these new bodies. Okay. Later on, this would change. Starting in the late 1200s and the 1300s, uh, kings became much more powerful and respected in medieval society than the Pope. Right? The, the monarchs were increasingly winning the sort of struggle for power and prestige. So more often they gained legitimation, letters, charters from kings, emperors, or city governments rather than the pope. Right? But, but initially the authority, the prestige of the university came from recognition from the pope, right? and who was the leader of the church, the one universally recognized and respected institution all throughout Western Christendom, right? Kind of by definition. And so having that legitimation from the Pope, prestige, and much greater safety, 
than any sort of schools would have had before. These different universities tended usually to imitate some precedent, right? Some previously existing institution. And some were more Bologna style, right? Where they'd be run by the students for the students. And that was common, especially in Central Europe, right? A lot of the students at Bologna were from Central Europe and Italy. Whereas in other areas, as such as France, England, later parts of Spain, those followed the Paris model, right? So you have, you have the Bologna style and the Paris style. So the permanent lasting universities formed in the 1200s include Oxford, which was founded around 1200, and which focused on law and government as well as some theology. It really had some of both. It's uncertain why that university formed at Oxford. Uh, you know, Oxford was a comparatively small town, didn't even have a cathedral and a bishop. Uh, it was sort of a minor market town, but it did have a royal court. And so, you know, who knows? It may have just been contingent, but uh, for some reason, that's where a lot of students clustered together and formed the first university in England. They were followed by Montpellier around 1205. And this university, the first one in southern France, was focused particularly on medicine and was built a lot by students and teachers of medicine that were already there at uh, medical schools, schools for physicians in Montpellier. Then Cambridge was founded in 1209. That's one of the first ones we have precise dates for. Then Salamanca in Spain in 1218. Padova in Italy in 1222. Naples in 1224. And this was an important one. It was the farthest south of any university up to that time. And it was founded on the initiative of the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II, who was a major uh, opponent and adversary of the Pope. So this is the first point where we see secular rulers and secular authorities actually taking the initiative and trying to get universities started, uh, largely in the hopes of then getting trained royal servants and officials who will be able to carry out the their political mission. That was followed by Toulouse, another in southern France in 1229, Orléans in north-central France around 1235, Angers in France in 1250, Lisbon in 1290, and Valladolid in Spain around 1300. So you might notice a sort of peculiar pattern here in the map of universities springing up around Europe. There was often doubling, okay, where two universities would form in fairly nearby cities in the same basic region, okay? Bologna and Padova, both in the same part of northeastern Italy. Uh, Oxford and Cambridge, both in uh, southern England, not far from London. Montpellier and Toulouse in southern France. Salamanca and Valladolid in Spain, etc. So why would this happen? Well, the reason is because there were frequent fights and disputes within these universities, sometimes between teachers and students, sometimes between uh, different 
camps or schools of thought that disagreed over the proper curriculum. And these fights and disputes would sometimes cause one group or the other to quit and decamp to another town not too far away and set up their own university, right? Now, usually these schisms were resolved, right? The, the parties would, would negotiate, or maybe the split-away group would simply uh, fizzle and their university would fail. So there were a whole lot of temporary and short-lived uh, universities that sprang up from these splits, okay? For example, in Italy at Reggio, Vicenza, Arezzo, Vercelli, and Piacenza, in Spain at Palencia, in France at Angers, and another in Spain at Seville. But some of them stuck, okay? Some of them ended up finding their own supporters and patrons, their own market of students, and persisted as kind of friendly rivals to the original that they split off from. And the most important of these are Cambridge, which started off in the early 1200s because there was a heresy controversy at Oxford and various teachers were questioned for, you know, on accusations of heresy and hence split off and went to Cambridge. And, you know, as we know, those are now the two long-lasting prestigious universities in England. Also, Padova in Italy started from a split-off group from Bologna. So there was further expansion then in the 1300s with dozens more founded. And these universities in the 1300s little by little took on a new character and colonized new areas. Several were founded in, in uh, existing countries that already had universities like France, Italy, uh, Spain. And they continued to attract many different students from all over Western Christendom, right? So so in the 1200s and the early 1300s, we can talk about the sort of universalistic era of universities where they were very multilingual, multi-ethnic. People very often made long journeys, pilgrimages to go study at these universities. But in 1378, there was a dramatic uh, schism where different branches of the church fell into dispute over who was the real pope. And for a long time, there were two rival popes and even for a period, three. And this schism caused great acrimony, especially among churchmen, right, who, who often fought over who was, say, who was the legitimate bishop. And this made it a lot more difficult politically, even sometimes dangerous, to sort of venture beyond your own home region and try to study at one of these faraway universities. And the result was that more and more people localized. Universities drew more and more just on the local population. Okay, People didn't want or need to travel thousands of miles away anymore to go to a university. So we see the end of this universalistic era and increasing localization. And more and more universities were expected to serve the particular local state and the growing middle class, the sort of class of literate, educated people within a certain town or city, okay, which maybe you might say is more like the way we think of a lot of universities today. 
universities started to spring up little by little in Central Europe, right? So Central Europe had been the holdout, right? Uh, a lot of Central European people who wanted training tended to go to Italy, to Bologna or Padova. And Central Europe, you know, Germany, Poland, tended to be very heavily aristocratic, right? The nobility had enormous wealth and power, even more so than in Western Europe. And this seems to have inhibited the creation of universities there, right? The nobility often didn't want a new rising educated middle class that could compete with them for power and prestige. And if they wanted a university education themselves, they often had the wealth to go travel. So you might find German aristocrats at Paris and Padova and places like this. But the first university in Central Europe was finally formed at Prague in 1347. And then later, after 1378, many more sprung up, first in Germany, such as at uh, Erfurt, Heidelberg, and Cologne, and then later others in Austria and Poland. So these new newer universities in Central Europe could take on new markets, new roles, new audiences, as opposed to the older, more established ones in Western Europe. And then finally, uh, Scotland saw the creation of its first university at St. Andrews in 1411, which then was followed not long after by Glasgow and Aberdeen in the 1400s. So finally, by 1500, if we sort of cut off our Middle Ages at that arbitrary round number, there were a total of 62 universities in Europe by that date. So what did these medieval universities teach? What was their curriculum? Well, it was a fairly set and consistent curriculum that tended to remain mostly constant from one school to another, from one country to another, and from one century to another. It was centered on a core of accepted authoritative texts of various fields. And it was guided by this basic medieval philosophical understanding of the world as a complete system that is created and ordered by God according to a sort of grand scheme, natural scheme, natural law, and that uh, it was understandable systematically. Right? And, and this is really, you might say, the, the philosophical, theoretical belief underpinning liberal education, that there is a way to, to systematically grasp the different spheres and levels of creation. The basic fields that you would study at any university began with the trivium, threefold path, of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Right? So the trivium deals with verbal communication and understanding. Then the quadrivium, the four-way path, which is the mathematical analysis of the world. And the fields are arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And some theorists of education, even you know, far back in the earlier Middle Ages, uh, argued that, uh, that the quadrivium is a sort of full exercise of mathematical reasoning. Arithmetic is number in the abstract. Geometry is number in space. Music is number in time. And astronomy is 
number in space and time. Okay, so in this way, astronomy was sort of the highest discipline of philosophy, right? And, and all of these fields of the trivium and the quadrivium could be put under this general heading of philosophy, right? The pursuit of knowledge or wisdom. Once one had completed the trivium and quadrivium, one could be eligible for a baccalaureate degree, and then one could advance to higher specialized disciplines, okay, the sort of application of philosophy to particular trades. And the three higher disciplines that uh, universities taught were medicine, law, and theology. Right? So, so any university would want to have at least one of those faculties, if not all three. So the trivium, the quadrivium, and the higher disciplines all were based on certain core authors, such as uh, particularly Augustine was very prestigious and important, and other classical authors, um, you know, Greek and Roman historians, philosophers, you know, Galen and medicine and so on. They were then, in, in the course of the 1200s, those teachings were then supplemented by Aristotle. So Aristotle was an important pre-Christian Greek philosopher whose teachings had been largely lost and forgotten in Western Christendom in the early Middle Ages, but then they were gradually recovered, especially in the 1200s, from Islamic schools and translation workshops in Spain. So they were reintroduced into Christendom translated into Latin, analyzed, discussed, and there was a kind of insurgent Aristotelian school that got uh, Aristotle's teachings incorporated into the curriculum little by little. And you could say that this was kind of the first, the first intellectual revolution that happened very early on in these early universities, and it gave rise to what we call scholastic philosophy, right? And, and that's a a very sophisticated metaphysical philosophy that tries to integrate and synthesize together the traditional Christian philosophy, especially of Augustine, with Aristotle. So scholastic philosophy is simply, it simply means the philosophy of schools. These early universities conferred a series of degrees, and the main point of degrees was to enable a person to become a teacher, right? If you obtained a degree, that meant that you were recognized as qualified to teach certain fields. You could first take examinations and receive a baccalaureate, which enabled you to simply to teach philosophy at the most basic level to children or new pupils. From there, you could advance to a master, and this enabled you to teach at the university level. Okay, and often many universities would expect you to stay and become a master at the university where you'd been educated. And then finally, a doctorate. And this enabled you to teach a higher level discipline like medicine, law, or theology. In the Middle Ages, most students did not obtain degrees. Rather, they would show up, enroll with a teacher, and just get instruction in the particular fields that they wanted to be qualified in, and then they would move on. Okay, so you might then from there, after a certain limited course, you might go become a government official or a priest or whatever. Most students didn't get degrees, 
And if they did, it, it was in order to, usually in order to become a teacher, right? And only a minority went through the really arduous examination process to get those degrees. The teaching at a medieval university was almost entirely oral, okay, including exams. Students usually had very small collections of texts, okay? This we're talking about before the printing press. Written books were highly expensive and hard to obtain. So if you had any at all, it was probably just a, you know, a small single bookshelf of them. And instead you would attend courses of study that were conducted uh, out loud, okay, you could, you could uh, matriculate, join a university and study, even if you were blind or illiterate, which seems to have happened in some cases. If you just had a good enough memory and you practiced orally by yourself or with friends or tutors, you could even obtain a degree without being able to read. Most teaching was in the form of lectures, where professor would bring a certain authoritative book, maybe, you know, Augustine's City of God or Aristotle's Poetics, whatever it is, and read from it while also giving explication, clarification, and examples to make sure that students fully understood the text, right? The, the professor was not expected to have original ideas of their own. They were expected to be good teachers of a received text. And then you'd also have occasional disputations, okay, public debates between scholars over ambiguous or controversial points, right? Not everyone understood these texts exactly the same. And you'd have a, a debate with opposing theses or arguments, and hopefully at some point either the students or another teacher would agree on a synthesis, a combination, a conclusion of these arguments. Weekly disputations tended usually to just be mock debates, right, for the sake of instruction and illustration, but the, the correct answer was kind of already foreordained. However, there were also occasional real debates on actual live disagreements, which might happen maybe every few weeks or months, depending on the school and the subject. And these disputations could be resolved or sometimes not. And there were often real heated rivalries, debates, and eventually by the 1300s, there were pretty entrenched opposing schools of thought within scholastic philosophy. And you might say in a lot of ways, scholastic philosophy really is about debate and about the attempt to reconcile opposing arguments or arguments that are in tension or in conflict. What about the students? Who were the students? Well, admission to a medieval university was basically open. There really weren't requirements. You didn't have to have some other degree coming in. Uh, you didn't have to pass any examination. And, and as I said, in some cases, you didn't even have to be literate. You just had to show up, be ready to support yourself and survive in the town, and be ready to study. And if you want a degree, a degree be ready to study and learn enough to pass your exams. So you just had to show up. You had to be a person of basically okay reputation, so some sort of letter of recommendation, someone vouching for you, was good. You had to pay a fee and take an oath. In this oath, you would promise to obey the, the laws and rules of the university, 
to uphold the good reputation of the university, to basically not cause problems, <laughs> and sign in a, a matriculation book. And matriculation meant that you were thereby joining the university in the sense that you as an individual were becoming part of this larger corporate body. You had the same rights and freedoms and also the same responsibilities as a member of that larger body. What was the composition of the students? Well, there was a great variety in terms of uh, place of origin, ethnicity, and also class and wealth. There were big differences and sometimes splits and tensions between richer and poorer students. Okay, uh, There were some aristocrats, people of high birth, who studied or taught at universities, and often they would be expected to receive certain deferences, right? certain special, say, special places at a dining table or special seats at a ceremony because of their higher status. Well, many other students were, you know, middle class, kind of proto-bourgeois, or quite poor, and had to scrape by and survive while studying. There were often scholarships, okay, groups like, uh, you know, guilds or church groups might give money, create funds to support poor students. But a lot of these scholarships were often abused, right, and sometimes high-status, well-connected men, men who had long relationships with the university might get those scholarships even if they weren't so poor. What about the discipline? Well, it seems that the students at universities, you know, they tended to be teenagers. They might matriculate anywhere from age 12 to their 20s or sometimes 30s, but they tended to be a lot of teenagers. And their behavior was often quite unruly. And if we look back at the way people wrote and commented on the earliest universities in the 1200s, the picture doesn't seem to have been pretty, at least not in a lot of people's eyes. And uh, I want to just read to you this passage by the historian Reiner Christoph Schwingus, writing about uh, how people perceived universities early on in the 1200s. And he says, quote, from the 13th to the 15th century, the same laments are heard again and again from all quarters. Students are bawling and brawling, carousing and whoring, singing and dancing, playing cards and chess, are addicted to dice and other games of chance, are up and about town day and night, are swanking around in inappropriate, fashionable clothing, are behaving provocatively to burghers, guild members, and town law and order forces, are carrying arms, and are even making use of them. It is not the university and knowledge which attract them, but the diversions and seductions of town life. And Schwingus goes on to paraphrase the Cardinal Jacques de Vitry in Paris, describing the University of Paris, again in the early 1200s, right, so in its early years. And Vitry described the university as, quote, an international parliament of sin, a rendezvous for vice-ridden souls the world over. The students of Paris studied only in winter and spent the summer roaming far and wide. They went from one teacher to the next, attending no course to its conclusion, just doing the bare minimum to avoid losing their student privileges. They would, if need be, attend lectures in canon law solely because they took place at an hour when they had awoken from their slumbers. 
So if anyone else out there has had experience as a university professor, you know, maybe you can take comfort that uh, if sometimes you see your students clearly, you know, rolling in right out of bed, still hungover, uh, this is not a new thing, right? This is, this is the sort of thing that tends to happen when you get a lot of young people together in one place. But universities, in order to protect their reputation and in order to, pr- to protect their privileges and special freedom, in these towns and cities, they had to become more strict. They had to at least make a good show of trying to crack down on this disruptive, disreputable behavior. And so more and more universities required their students to disavow all drinking, to disavow fighting. And this was very important because it meant that you couldn't engage in duels and fight to protect your personal honor. But instead, when you matriculated, it was increasingly understood that you were subsuming your personal honor into that of the larger group and institution that you were part of. They also usually had to disavow any fraternization with women. Uh, And this was pretty tricky because at this time, none of the universities accepted women as students or teachers. Some might go and attend classes and study but they were not uh, admitted as students. Nonetheless, there were some women who were members of universities. Remember, a university meant a corporate body of people joined together, and that included the various employees and workers at a university. So that might include cooks, maids, uh, scribes, and so on, which could include women. So these young men lived in an environment with very few women, but there were still some. And it seems there was a lot of difficulty and probably a lot of uh, wrangling over, you know, what happened between these men and women, you know, at night, in secret, in private places, and um, how that affected the standing of the university. So more and more, the universities intentionally cultivated pride and honor you know, they, if they were to manage their various members, they had to persuade them that it was worth their while to give up personal independence and a personal sense of honor, at least temporarily, for the sake of this larger institution. Okay, and uh, more and more universities encouraged the development of managed and supervised living, right, in order to monitor and try to improve the behavior of their members, especially their students. So as for the living arrangements, initially they were simply independent, right? The university was just a place you studied. It had nothing to do with how you lived. And students generally fended for themselves, right? Finding their own living quarters, their own food, and so on. But little by little, both in order to improve behavior and in order to provide for poorer students who had a hard time supporting themselves in these towns, the universities encouraged the formation of boarding houses. You know, you might see them as kind of the precursors of dormitories, right? Organized boarding houses for students, usually with faculty advisors and support from the university, right? And they might be arranged anywhere around the area where classes took place, right? Now, finally, in the late 1200s, some benefactors started to found colleges at universities, 
Okay, the, the first, it seems, was the Sorbonne College at the University of Paris, and then shortly after it, Merton College at Oxford. And the colleges were modeled on the sort of houses and monasteries of the mendicant orders in cities like the Dominicans and Franciscans, where you'd live in a kind of managed environment that wasn't as isolated as a monastery usually would be, right? And the colleges provided housing, usually with some supervision. And then gradually they grew and took over uh, boarding halls and started to set up libraries, uh, studying spaces, and even eventually classrooms and lecture halls where professors would teach. And eventually some professors started joining these colleges and living uh, together with their students in the college, right? They also took over the admission process, right? So more and more as more colleges sprung up, say at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, you wouldn't go to a university official and say, I want to matriculate. You'd go to a college and the colleges might have some criteria or some standards for who could join and enjoy their facilities, right? So this is where we see the sort of classic Oxbridge model taking shape, right? Where each college is almost like a little miniature university unto itself that can totally envelop a student, right? And manage his or her entire life, right? Eating, sleeping, studying, socializing. And there are gatekeepers, Right, to manage who gets to be part of the community. Right? And eventually this new template of the college actually sort of took on a life of its own to the point where it became possible to form colleges on their own apart from a larger university. Why not? If it's got everything you need, why not just have a college? And that's what we see in certain places like the North American colonies is colleges forming that then, little by little, take on the complete character of a university. Okay, so as I said before, you can see a kind of cycle happening where universities offer a certain accepted authoritative body of knowledge and ideas. They allow for debate uh, and intellectual exchange, but they can easily become ossified, right, sort of stagnate. Uh, where they're, they're just dominated by certain received ideas, dogmas, practices that people in the rest of the world outside the university might no longer find important or persuasive. Right? So they can come to be seen as kind of closed, dogmatic, out of touch. And when that happens, they can easily be mocked and derided and lose their influence and prestige. When this happens, usually at some point a new guard comes in, sort of invades the inner sanctum, right? Because the university still holds a certain symbolic power and importance in Western society. And so the new guard usually doesn't simply give up on them, but at some point infiltrates, gets new ideas adopted and taught, and hence the university gains a new vitality and a new prestige, a new relevance, okay? Sometimes this tends to start at the newer schools, the ones that don't have uh, as long-standing entrenched traditions. And then from there, they spread to the older schools. And the, the sort of revolution 
is completed. But then eventually those new ideas also become old and obsolete and they can again fall behind the times and the cycle begins again, right? So this is my rough sort of schematic of the, the sort of thing we see happening with universities over and over again from the 1400s onward or even I should say with the 1300s onward. In some ways you could say this is what happened almost right from the beginning with the uh, Aristotelian revolution in the 1200s. But not long after that, scholastic philosophy in the 13 and 1400s came to be seen as old-fashioned, dogmatic, obsolete, and too entrenched in kind of obscure debates over weird, uh, you know, jargon, metaphysical jargon, too much Aristotle. And this was challenged then first by Renaissance humanism. Okay, and humanism is a style of philosophy that was pioneered most of all by poets. Okay, the first really famous kind of celebrity humanist was the poet Petrarch, but there were even others before him in the 1300s. And then later was taken up by celebrity intellectuals like Erasmus. The humanists often mocked the universities as overly obsessed, right, with obscure metaphysical problems and terms and categories, okay, disputations over, you know, angels dancing on a pinhead, right? They emphasized what they called studia humanitatis, right, the study or understanding of humanity, humankind, right, by which they meant people's loves, passions, emotions, life experiences, they also emphasized the study of language, especially living language. Language is actually spoken and written by ordinary people every day. And humanists sort of made it their mission to study and understand Latin, not as a technical language of theology or metaphysics, but as a language of everyday life, of politics, right, and of uh, poetry, okay? And they tried to unearth and celebrate ancient Latin writing, both pagan and Christian, right? So it's, sometimes it's misunderstood that, well, the Renaissance was about recovering pre-Christian pagan antiquity as against the church. But that's not really true. You know, both scholastics and humanists were interested in both pagan and Christian learning, okay? So they had a goal of learning from people's actual lives and experiences and hence developing themselves, seeking reassurance, wisdom, guidance in their actual lives, okay? And they studied philosophers like, again, Aristotle, but also Cicero, Augustine, Jerome, not for the purpose of Christian salvation or correct Christian doctrine, but again, for the purpose of developing character, resilience. And it seems that this way of reading was very appealing to people in the 1300s, which was a very hard you know, tumultuous, harsh, brutal century, you know, famines, plagues, war, political schisms, people turned to ancient philosophy as a source of comfort when they didn't necessarily still have full confidence in the philosophy of the church. They tried to develop eloquence, oratory, okay? Poetry was valued over logic and metaphysics, 
They celebrated the vida activa, the active life, right? Rather than the sort of cloistered life of the monk or the scholar, for that matter. They celebrated the life of the orator, the politician, the warrior. And it charted a middle course, you might say, between, on the one hand, dogmatic devotion to tradition, which is how they saw the universities, and total relativism, right? All There is no truth, everything is equally valid. They tried to seek out a sort of middle ground, a sort of uh, search for a human truth grounded in real experience and real life. So it began initially outside the universities, and it flourished mostly in private and literary circles, right? Correspondences between uh, poets. But it did make inroads into universities, little by little, beginning in Italy, right? So the universities in Italy emphasized law rather than theology, and that's arguably one of the reasons why there was less obstacle, right? Less resistance to experimenting in humanism in the Italian universities. And early on, it took the form of giving poets the right to teach, especially on antiquity and literature, right? So people who hadn't gone through, who hadn't necessarily gone through the complex process of getting a master's or a doctorate, but who were recognized as poets. And a kind of early landmark you might see in 1315, when the University of Padova granted to the poet Musato a laurel wreath as a reward for winning a poetry contest. And so this was the first poet's crown given out since antiquity. And with that crown, he gained the right to teach at the university. Later on through the 1300s, humanism also started to influence the trivium teachers. You know, if you, if you were a teacher of grammar, logic, or particularly rhetoric... Maybe you wanted to know what the humanists were saying about the great authors and orators of the ancient world, especially Cicero, who was more and more studied and celebrated as kind of uh, the greatest uh, persuasive writer, the sort of most uh, poetic philosopher and historian, who wrote about uh, the active life, about politics and, and power. It then was followed in the late 1300s by uh, universities giving chairs for professors to teach Greek, okay, which was the original language, of course, of Aristotle and all those other important Greek writers, and also of, of a lot of early Christian writing, right? You know, the whole New Testament was originally in Greek, right? So... You see uh, Greek starting to make its way into the curriculum. And then this was given a dramatic boost after 1453 when Constantinople fell to the Turks and all sorts of scholars and authors who who knew uh, ancient literature in Constantinople fled to the West. And some of them then went to teach at the Western universities. Now, in this process, after 1453, it seems that the younger, newer Central, uh, Central European universities were particularly innovative and often led the way. Okay? So humanism was really first embraced and became sort of the accepted philosophy of universities in Hungary at uh, Pech and uh, Pagoni. 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing those correctly. <laughs> Maybe I'll look it up later. Then shortly after at Krakow in Poland and then at Vienna. These newer universities could kind of lead the way. And this also spurred on the development of new philosophies and new sciences. For example, Nicolaus Copernicus, who was German-Polish, studied at Krakow in the 1490s and was immersed in humanism and took inspiration from Greek uh, astronomers to formulate his heliocentric uh, theory of the universe. Right? So this helps then to, to spur on new philosophies and what we call natural science. And those then gained more and more of an audience in England over the course of the 15 and 1600s of, at Oxford and Cambridge, of course. Okay, so so once uh, the, the path is blazed by newer universities, it uh, then spills over into the older, more prestigious institutions. In addition, the printing press was also developed around the same time that uh, scholars from Constantinople were coming west. And the printing press allowed for much more books to be printed and sold cheaply. So there was wider reading, and students and scholars became more erudite and were able to master more languages. However, the printing press, you might say, was a double-edged sword for the universities because it also made it possible for a scholar to make some money from publishing books. And for some of them, this meant that now they no longer had to look to a university chair as their source of income and a living, right? And it seems that Erasmus, the great master of Greek who uh, authored the first annotated Greek edition of the New Testament, he was the first respected scholar who made his living and his income entirely off of his books and never wanted or sought out a university position. So little by little, you could say there was something of a talent drain, okay? When, as the literate public grew and as the printing presses multiplied and as a republic of letters formed, in the towns and cities, there was, you might say, something of a brain drain where the most uh, audacious, the most innovative thinkers didn't need or want to go to the universities. And in the 17 and 1800s, it seems that the universities went into another crisis. Okay, so this you might say is sort of the third great crisis where the Republic of Letters was flourishing and gaining a good deal of popularity especially among the new literate middle classes. And the universities were kind of irrelevant, right? The great philosophes, Rousseau, Voltaire, were not university professors. And again, university faculties were seen and, and mocked as stuffy, old-fashioned, obscurantist, right? Kind of guarding irrelevant old knowledge, obsessed with antiquity and with correct, uh, you know, Latin style, and particularly non-church-sanctioned philosophies, okay, philosophies about natural rights or the science of man that were not rooted in theology or in antiquity, really took up, you might say, the new intellectual mind space. Now, little by little, these ideas were, again, taken up at universities 
And again, Central Europe led the way, particularly Germany. Okay, so we, if we think of, for, for instance, Immanuel Kant, this great German philosopher who tried to integrate the new ideas, right? The new humanistic ideas, the new skepticism, the new empiricism, together with the older style metaphysics. He was a university professor at uh, Konigsberg, right? And in fact, he, that was where he spent his entire life. And he was most famous in his own time as a teacher of anthropology, of this sort of new science of humankind, as well as moral philosophy. So there was this development and multiplication of new scientific disciplines that often had new specialized terms, okay, language and methods. And these were little by little integrated into the universities. And I'll talk later about the international impact of this new German model that we call the research university. Uh, but before I get into that, I'll just say that this new adaptation of universities did succeed for a time, but now the cycle is continuing, and I would argue that this model of the university also is now in crisis. So thank you so much for listening to this first part of the saga. And if you want to hear about universities in the United States, the rise of the research university, and the contemporary crisis that I believe universities are in today, please follow this podcast. And if you can give any support to keep these lectures coming, please go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Splaining. And if you have feedback, uh, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts please comment or email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. Thank you.